Welcome to the Wellbeing Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with the founder of Watson Immigration Law with expertise in business, investor and family-based immigration. Author and blogger, regularly quoted and published in the media, author of the Startup Visa and Legal Heroes. Also founded a non-profit called Widen to train and mentor lawyers to help detained immigrants. Co-founder of Airport Lawyer that provided critical help during the travel ban crisis. On today's podcast, we'll be chatting about what visas are available to expat pilots wanting to work in the USA. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, Tamina Watson. How are you getting on, Tamina? Thank you so much, David, for having me. I'm doing very well. Hello from Seattle. It's cold and rainy and gray, okay. <laughs> uh, but I'm doing well and happy to be here. Super. I mean, Tamina's been on the, on the podcast already. She, she spoke about her journey um, into law, but today is slightly different uh, we're going to be trying a lot of questions coming in with regards to how easy it is or how complicated it is for pilots specifically. And uh, that's our main focus today to gain employment in uh, the USA. So Tamina is an expert at this, and I'm going to try my very best to ask the questions as simplistic as possible. And Tamina has promised that she's trying to answer them as simple as possible. So, oh, I'm going to try, I'm going to try. <laughs> that, 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 that's all we, we could do. So before we kick off, just to me, just give our listeners a little bit more about your background. Uh, you mentioned that you're in Seattle at the moment. So what's your general work background or career background? So thanks again, David, for giving me this opportunity to talk about some of these things that are very important to me. So I was born and raised in London, as you might be able to tune into my accent. And I moved here when I got married to my American husband and went through the immigration process. I was a baby barrister in the UK. And, you know, in the US, a barrister meant nothing until George Clooney married one. <laughs> um, and so now I'm not a coffee uh, maker or anything. I, I can actually say with a straight face. I'm a, I'm a barrister and a trial attorney. But when I moved here, I had to requalify and I became an attorney, or as they call them here. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to practice. I really, you know, having come from one country, moving to another, things are different here. So I ended up, long story short, doing immigration law. And immigration law is um, federal, meaning that the law applies all around the country, even if you live in different states. What is really interesting about what I do is I primarily practice business immigration, and that is helping uh, people with work visas, helping investors get visas for themselves or workers. Um, I help business owners get uh, recruitment strategies and you know apply for work visas. And that's about 70% of my work, all employment-based work visas and green cards. And green cards, just in case anybody's new to the immigration lingo, green card is having permanent legal, permanent residence in the United States. And you have to have different pathways to getting the green card. I also do a little bit of family-based immigration, about 30%, and that's when uh, a spouse or a parent or a child uh, or a sibling even is applying for uh, a relative, and then I apply for citizenship for people. I do not go to immigration court anymore, and so uh, to fulfill that desire to help people, I, I run a nonprofit and I train lawyers to take that type of case, cases. So, you know, doing employment-based immigration is my jam, and I'm just so pleased <laughs> to be able to have the opportunity to talk about some of the issues that are on your mind. Yeah, no, great. So uh, what we'll do is, Tamina, we'll, we'll, we spoke briefly before we started recording the podcast, uh, but just to... To kind of get into it, there's reports generally in the media or airlines, and they're specifically saying that there's a pilot shortage. So the focus of this podcast is trying to give information to, say, pilots in other countries who want to obtain a work visa to work for maybe one of the American uh, airline carriers in, uh, in the USA. From what I can understand from other reports as well, the pilot shortage may not be so specific in Europe or other parts of the world. Uh, especially as it's been reported that there's thousands of pilots unemployed in, in these regions, but not so much possibly in America. I want to clarify that because I know there's a lot of, how do you say, can be upset people out there, or pilots, for example, who 
are looking for work and then they're hearing these statements, pilot shortage, pilot shortage, and it frustrates them because they're trying to get a job and they can't. So I want to get mm. that part out of the way first. So let's move in then to the questions. So there is lots of articles mentioned of pilot shortage in the USA and airlines are kind of, their flights are grounded or cancelling flights because they don't have enough uh, pilots. So is it easy to obtain uh, a work visa for an American company or an American airline and um, we'll then move on then to the type of visas if that's okay to be mm-hmm. and the the simple answer is no in in America there is an alphabet you know letters of um, alphabet soup as we call them of visas starting from a or and they go all the way to T and every visa has its own requirements and um, whether you need a sponsor or not when it comes to work visas, you have to match the job with the with the individual and you also have to make sure that um, you're following the requirements of the visa some visas have time limits well all visas have time limits as in how long you can have that visa but there are time limits and when you can file for an application there are limitations on where you file the application um, a lot of visas would have to be issued at the embassy particularly if you're not in the US embassies were closed around the world US embassies particularly uh, due to COVID for practically nine to 10 months. And when they reopened, uh, they were very limited in their appointments. So in the last two years, there has been um, unprecedented problems that have come up in the immigration world. Not only are we dealing with immigration issues generally, but we had external issues affecting immigration. But before we go into the immigration you know, visa types, I want to give a picture of how an immigration application is filed, just the anatomy of a visa application, just in a very simplified form. Any work visa will have three headings, employer, employment, employee. The employer has to show with paperwork that they're doing all the boring things that boring businesses do. They have an office. They have a license to operate their business. They do payroll taxes. They pay federal taxes. Um, You know, they have contracts. They have revenue. They have uh, all the things that you need to operate a business has to be shown on paper. And whatever visa you apply for, those documents will run through no matter what kind of visa it is. And so that's one section. The employment is what are you doing? And as a pilot, your job description, you likely, your listeners likely know what that is, but that job description is paramount. It's the starting point of any visa assessment that I would do. And then lastly, employee. Does that employee have the the credentials, the educational background or whatever the requirement is for that visa? Um, to be able to do that job. Now, every visa, as I mentioned, has different requirements, and we have to fit those requirements under some of these headings that I mentioned. It's either subheadings of employer, employee, uh, employer, or subheading of the employee su- section. Uh, but that's the, the essentially those three headings. If you can keep that in mind, the rest of what I will say will likely make a mo- lot more sense. Okay, so the first question I have is uh, the E3 visa or the ECHO3 visa. There was an article from Business Insider about Australian expat pilots. I love the Australians. It's not pointing the finger at anybody. It's just to get more information. Having an opportunity to work for an airline called Breeze Airways. The, the article mentions Australian pilots would be able to work as Breeze pilots under the E3 work visa program and a little used but not unprecedented solution to the pilot shortage. Skilled Australian nationals can apply to legally work in the US and regional airlines, including Commute Air and Express Jet Airlines, have used the program to recruit pilots from the country. It's an opportunity to give good, hardworking, well-qualified folks jobs who want to live in the US and want to be a pilot for a US airline. And that came from Mr. Christopher Owens. He's a Breeze Airlines Vice President of Flight Operations. A very good afternoon to you, Mr. Owens, if you're listening. So generally, Tamina, why is the Echo 3 visa generally available only for Australians? Or is there something else similar that 
other expat pilots can can obtain. Well, David, first of all, I'm so glad that you saw that article and uh, huge kudos to the Breeze Airways team for having this recruitment strategy. I have to say I got very excited when that article came out because as an immigration attorney who is advising and strategizing with business owners, I have on numerous occasions tried to steer my clients into this particular visa and some others that I'll mention. And this strategy that they have employed is genius in my mind, because as I will talk a little bit more as we continue this discussion, you will see the limitations in various visas. But the E3 is a fantastic visa for this particular situation. The E3 visa is a work visa. It is maximum uh, ob obtainable for two years, and it is only for Australian citizens. And I'm going to talk a little bit about citizenship and different visas available before I come back to the E3. Okay. In America, America has commercial treaties with different countries. Um, not all countries like India or China or Indonesia, but they do have it with various European countries. Uh, but there are specific visas for specific countries. So the E3 is only for Australians. No other country in the world uh, has this privilege. So citizens of Australia only can utilize the E3 visa. Only 10,000 visas are given out each year. But the reason this is a genius idea is because even though 10,000 visas are set aside for the E3 visa, they're not utilized to the maximum capacity every year. It is relatively easy to get in the sense that if you have a degree and the job matches the degree, remember the anatomy of a visa application I mentioned, employer, employment, employee, if the job requires a bachelor's degree and you have that bachelor's degree or the equivalent uh, in, and there's a match, so as a lawyer I cannot apply for a pilot's job, there's no nexus in the education I've received, um, that's how the, the job and the employee will match. And so the E3 can be applied at the embassy any time in the year, or if you're in the US, you can apply for it here. And the embassies for the E3 visas can typically see you relatively quickly. When the embassy gives you that passport stamp, you can actually come to the US and start working immediately. You do need to be employed and sponsored by a US business. So whether it's an airline or any other industry, and we know that every industry is hurting at the moment in the US, this E3 would be useful. But I want to take the opportunity to talk about the countries uh, that have specific visas. So as I mentioned, E3 is only for Australia. There was discussion about five six years ago to see if some Irish, uh, wh whether the E3 visa could be applied to Irish citizens. And there was a push for that. <laughs> yeah. There was a push for that, David, and it would have been exciting if it had happened, but it didn't actually happen. So maybe a lot of people listening to this conversation today, David, could approach you and maybe that conversation could be revived, particularly now as Congress is looking at immigration reform, this is something that maybe could be put back on the table, but it needs a push from those who are interested. So if there is anybody listening, anybody interested in getting Ireland onto the E3 program, now is the time to look into it and make those pushes. And if you want to talk offline, anybody interested, feel free to contact me. Um, there is a visa called E2 and E1. E2 and E1, and David, I will make sure you get links to these um, uh, visa categories. Okay. The Department of State has a list, a complete list of all the countries that can benefit from the E2 and E1. These are, the E2 is a treaty investor visa, but it can be for employees as well. So let's say um, that you, David, you opened a business here and you are doing pilot consulting or for whatever reason, and you can hire people who are from uh, your country, E2 countries, um, you have to be an E2 country citizen and the potential employees would have to be that same country too. They could come to the US on the E2 visa as an employee. So that's the E2. The E1 is trading. So let's say you are doing that consulting business you are trading between the US and the U, uh, and any other e, E2, E1 country, 
the E1 could be uh, available for that. Many European countries are on the E2, E1 list, and you can check on that. So I want you to start making this list, anybody listening and interested. Um, obviously, I don't know which one would apply to any of the listeners, but if you have a list, you can start eliminating the ones that you don't think will apply to you, and then you're left with two, and then you could explore which one. And I'm just throwing out numbers. It could be anything that applies to you. Yes. So that's the E2 and E1 that I mentioned. I want to talk about the H1B visa. And I will talk about that in a minute in a more extensive manner. But I'm just talking about the country issues. The H1B visa is for anybody from anywhere in the world who is coming to the US and they're being sponsored by a US business. Uh, you must have a degree and uh, the job must require that degree, similar to the E3. The H-1B visa, as I mentioned, is for anybody from anywhere in the world. And there are time limits in that, in when you can apply. Um, the H-1B the visa begins with the fiscal year in the U.S. And the fiscal year in the U.S. begins October 1. And so anybody who gets that visa can start working on October 1st of any given year. And you can apply six months in advance of that. And so that window is ap uh, approaching us as we speak. These applications have a lottery system, a random selection. That happens on April 1st, but you have to put your name in the lottery between March 1st and March 18th this year. Every year the dates shift a little bit, but this year it's March 1st to March 18th. So let's say British Airways was applying for somebody uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, British Airways would have to put your name in the hat uh, between March 1st and March 18th. On April 1st, you will know if you have been selected in the lottery or not. Thereafter, if you are selected, you file for the application. And uh, if you are approved, you would start working October 1. But prior to that, you'd have to go to the embassy to get a visa stamp. That is the H-1B visa for anybody anywhere in the world. There are two countries that have a bit of a privilege on that H-1B. That is H-1B-1. H-1B-1. And that those, the H-1B-1 is available for citizens of Singapore and citizens of Chile. So it's a bit like the E3, you have to apply at the embassy, it would be relatively quick to get, generally speaking, if the numbers are available. Um, and I'll talk about the numbers in a minute. Um, Singapore and Chile, if you're the citizens from there, you have a bit of an edge in that respect. Um, when I say every visa has a limit, meaning how many visas are given out each year. And I mentioned E3 has 10,000 visas that are given out each year. The H-1B visa uh, has 65,000 visas given out each year and um, an additional 20,000 visas are set aside for people who have a master's degree from a US school. So anybody listening to this podcast likely has a degree from a non-US school. Um, and, and even if you had a master's degree from a European school, you would still be considered in the bachelor's category, meaning the 65,000 cap. And so what happens on April 1st, the government will do a random lottery, random selection pro process. And in general, over the last several years, the government receives about 200 plus, 200,000 plus applications. So the lottery really is a lottery. And just because you put your name in doesn't mean you'll get selected. It's sort of like a one in three chances of being selected. And if you are selected, you have a limited time in which the application must be filed. If it is not filed within that timeline, you have to get, get in the lottery the next year. This is a good visa for um, pilots, uh, because you need a degree, generally speaking, uh, to be able to um, do this job. Now, in the US, it does seem like a lot of pilots can fly planes without having a degree. I'm one of them. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and, and it is obviously a very skillful profession. You need to have learned a lot and did training time and what have you. Um, H-1Bs are very much about having that minimum degree to have that academic and theoretical training. 
to be able to do that job. The Department of Labor gives out statistics on whether these a specific job needs a degree. And when I was checking, knowing that I was going to be speaking with you, David, today, that the US government thinks that less than 50% of people would have a degree to do this job. Right. Now, when you have a less than 50% statistic on whether a degree is necessary or not, that particular H-1B becomes a weak H-1B, meaning that they could question whether a degree is absolutely necessary or not. And so while the H-1B visa is a good visa, listeners should know that it would not be a breeze so to speak, <laughs> using yes. the breeze airways <laughs> wording. But, um, you know, it is still a good option. And if you don't put your name in the lottery and try, you'll never know. And so I, I did want to mention the H-1B visa. What I also want to mention is that if anybody's listening and they are from um, uh, Mexico or Canada, they can apply for a visa called a TN visa, which is part of the NAFTA Treaty, North American Trade Agreement. And that is only available to Mexican citizens and Canadian citizens. And again, no, no time limit. You can apply any time in the year. Uh, Canadian citizens can actually go to the border and apply, just like pop to the land border or airport and show your paperwork. Again, with the anatomy that I mentioned of a visa application employer employment employee, and uh, you can get a visa. So I mentioned the H-1B, H-1B-1. I mentioned the E-3. I mentioned the E-2 and E-1. I want to mention um, a few more visa categories. And I want to specifically mention the L-1 visa, L for lemon number one. This is a visa that is referred to as a multinational transfer visa. It can be for executives, people who are managers or owners of businesses, or it could be people with special knowledge of the business or the procedures of the business or the product of the business. This is used quite often for big companies that you're familiar with. Let's, I, I live in Seattle, so Microsoft sort of rolls off my tongue all the time. Uh, but let's say you're a Microsoft employee in London, in Germany or India or Australia, you can come to the United States on an L1 visa. And the L1 visa can be used any time in the year. And uh, as long as you're successful, you can be here for at least five years, which is the L1B visa and all seven years L1A visa. Now, let's say you're a pilot and you're working for Ryanair and Ryanair has uh, a branch in the United States. Maybe there's an opportunity for an L1B visa because most pilots likely won't be um, uh, managers potentially or executives, but you would have special knowledge of those planes and the airline and the procedures and the protocols. And so you could transfer to the United States if Ryanair opened a branch, branch here. Right. Um, and so that would be the L1B. Um, if you were managing pilots, uh, maybe you could have the L1A visa. And all of these visas, uh, again, employer, employment, employee stands. Uh, and the L L1 has a few other headings. Uh, is there um, a relationship between the U.S. company and the foreign company? And the way you show that relationship is the corporate relationship. Is it partnership? Is it um, an affiliation, meaning that there are the owners are same or similar? Or does the foreign branch or the U.S. branch own each other? You know, is there parent? The subsidiary situation. So that's uh, one of the crucial requirements of an L to show it is indeed a multinational company. Right. And then you have to show that you are going to, whatever job you're doing in the foreign country, you're going to be doing the same job here. And so that employment gets divided into two sections, employment abroad, employment in the US. And the employee section has to show that you as the employee have worked for the foreign company for at least one year out of the last three years. And th that's essentially a simplified version of what the L1 visa looks like. Mm 
And so that's the L visa. It could be a useful visa for those who have been employed. And look, David, I know the world has gone, you know, topsy-turvy. Yeah. And a lot of people have suffered and a lot of people may not be working at the moment. However, that doesn't deter you from applying for the L because it needs to be one year out of the last three years. So let's say somebody is currently unemployed and they were working for, you know, Ryanair seems like an easy one to talk about. I don't know much about Ryanair, so forgive me if you are <laughs> at Ryanair. Nope. Um, it's just, <laughs> um, isn't it, a, is it an Irish company, by the way, David? It is, yes. Yeah. Oh, look at that. There you go. I'm hitting all the right notes today. That's <laughs> um, but let's say you work worked for Ryanair you know, 18 months ago and you're not working with them anymore. But let's say Ryanair is now opening a branch. And, you know, I have seen various articles over the years that Ryanair was going to open a branch here. And when I, in my student days, I have to say I loved flying Ryanair. You know, I was jetting around Europe on my Saturdays for a weekend in my student <laughs> days when I couldn't afford anything, pack my sandwich in my backpack and go off and find some city that I don't know where it exists unless the Time Out magazine told me where it was, <laughs> you know. Um, but let's say you're unemployed now, but you work there for at least one year out of the last three years. That company could transfer you to the United States um, to do that job. And right. so it it is a good visa to utilize if you meet all the, the criteria. So that's the L visa. I want to mention another visa to you. And this is sort of a visa that was controversial in the last few years because the previous president used it um, for uh, a lot of the resorts that uh, he owned. But the H2B visa is a seasonal visa. It is a requirement uh, that the job be seasonal, intermittent, or one-time. So let's talk about this particular scenario of pilots. What can you conceive of as seasons in this particular industry? Is it the summer season when people are traveling all around the world because schools are closed? Could that be a season? Could that be defined as a season? If it could, maybe the H-2B visa could work. Now, the H-2B visa also has countries uh, listed. If you're from the X country, you can do this. Um, and if you're from Y country, you cannot do this. You have citizen uh, of those countries. But it is a good visa to you. It is one of the things I will mention. The United States does not have a low-skilled visa category. And when I say low-skilled, I don't mean that your skill is any worth less than any other skill because as a pilot we know you have to do hundreds and hundreds of hours of training before you can even uh, be given the responsibility of other people's lives so you yeah. are very skilled uh, but it doesn't necessarily need a degree and that happens in the U.S. for you know looking after uh, senior citizens in you know senior home care facilities or um, a manufacturing industry or the construction industry. There are many jobs in which you do not need a degree, but you need a lot of training. We do not have a visa that is, you know, fully for that kind of purpose, but we have the H-2B visa where you do not need to, need to show a professional or bachelor de degree uh, but the limitation becomes, what kind of job is it? Is it seasonal? Is it intermittent? Or is it one time? It could be a good solution for the pilot situation, particularly if, if the airlines could show this is a seasonal thing. And so if there are any airlines listening to this particular podcast um, and you want to brainstorm recruitment strategies, just like Breeze Airways has done, I would love to have that opportunity to craft the strategy because I think there could be multiple strategies. One of the things that is happening in the U.S., and David, you're, you're very much you know, hitting the heart of it, there are people who are around the world looking for employment. Yeah. And they would love to have that in the United States. The United States, on the other hand, has a complete shortage of workers in every single industry that you can think of. Immigration, however, is a divisive topic in this country. 
we have not been able to get immigration reform for three, four decades at this point, if not more. And we are in a window of opportunity where we could see some immigration reform. Which but, is good, which is a positive, yeah. Absolutely, it would be great, except until it happens, we can't rely on it, which means you are stuck with the visa categories that I just mentioned. And so, you know, I think what will be important for people to know is that don't give up trying to get a job. Make sure if there are any recruiters in the airline industry, speak with me and speak with David. I think it would be very interesting to sit down and say, okay, well, my client, if you're a recruiter, my client needs 10 people to do this job and they would be happy to have it for like a six month opening. Maybe the H2B visa could be it. Or if they say, well, I have this opening and that opening and I could do a targeted recruitment in Canada or Mexico, or I could do a targeted recruitment in Chile or Singapore. Um, those could be some of the solutions to look at. Um, I will mention that the H2B visa has its quota as well, and I forget the cap, but they are open twice a year. Um, they do a half of it beginning of the year, half of it at the end of the fiscal year. And so those numbers make a huge difference in when you can apply and if you can apply. But anybody looking for a summer job for now would have to start applying at this point so they could get here. Um, so that's the H2B that I wanted to talk about. I do want to mention two other things. Now, these are sort of like... Um, Put in your back pocket and see if it could work, not necessarily for experienced pilots, but pilots who are training at the moment, pilots who are just coming out of you know, as a flight school, uh, thinking about this as a profession. There is a visa called a J visa, and there's a visa called an H3 visa. I describe them as, uh, they are training visas, and I describe them as two sides of the same coin. One side, the J visa side is dealt with by the Department of State. The H3 side is dealt with by the USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is where most of these applications get filed. So it's in the United States. And when it is approved, you go to the embassy to get the visa. The J visa, I do not deal with them directly because these are issued by agencies. Uh, exchange program agencies is generally referred to as an exchange program and they will assess again you do need the three the anatomy that I mentioned right at the beginning make that your mantra employer employment employee right. you need that in every category J visa would need that too but let's say you have found an airline um, who wants to sponsor you and you don't have a lot of experience but they will train you and you you're I forget David what the terms are but maybe you're the second in command or the third in command or you yes know, the second officer first officer captain yeah yeah and so um, if you're training maybe the J visa could work now a lot of medical professionals use the J visa to be residents here it, it, they are specifically medical professionals, but maybe there's a way that could this could work. And if there are any airlines looking at, you know, trying to fill positions, I would love to talk to you. Sit down with me and David so we can help you strategize. They can um, sit with you, Tamina. They won't want to talk to me. <laughs> oh, well, you know, they, they, they should because you have inside info. And, um, you know, the, the insight that you bring, David, is unique. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're doing this uh, podcast and uh, understanding the difficulties uh, of people, I call it, you know, my profession, I always call them my tribe. I know my tribe. I know what issues are bothering them, how to help them. You know, that's how I started the nonprofit to match the community needs with the professional needs and vice versa. I see that in you because you would not be able to address this issue on a podcast if you did not have that um, um, insight professionally and personally. So I do think, you know, you could absolutely give a lot of strategic guidance to somebody. So coming back to the visa category, there's H3 visas. 
The H3 visa is again, employer, employment, employee, but the employment in this case is a trainee position. And you have to show with a training program, similar to how you would go to school, that there is a program to show month by month what you are learning uh, in a hands-on situation, as well as textbook situation, as well as through examination. And the government wants to see you are not replacing an American worker and you are learning a skill that you cannot get back home, but you would be employable back home. Right. So preparation for these cases are not necessarily simple at all, but they can be a way to bridge a gap um, in either ex gathering experience or sort of, you know, um, getting interns in place, uh, you know, for U.S. companies. Uh, so think of it as an internship, if you like. So that's the J visa and the H3 visa. And, you know, of the alphabet soup, that's pretty much half of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's <a lot. laughs> that, uh, and, and David, what I will say is what's interesting about this conversation that you and I are having today, even though you are specifically talking about pilots and hopefully pilots are listening to this, these, this type of discussion is what I have every day with almost everybody I speak with, no matter right. what the industry because these are the visas we have to deal with and these visas are used in every industry it does not need to be in one particular one the anatomy again the mantra employer employment employee stands to reason for every one of them if we can fit the requirements of that particular visa there wow i mean what i'll do is to me that as you mentioned there uh, earlier on we'll put all the links in with regards to every visa so that if somebody wants to listen to the podcast and then they can have a reference point then as you mentioned with regards to uh, the information but i have a few questions for you as well and the you brought it up previously uh, but one of the questions was do you think it's possible this obviously this is more opinion than uh, legal fact with regards to immigration Generally, is is it possible a special unit can be formed by the USA Immigration Office only for pilots that could help solve the pilot shortage? I'm going to put before that reported pilot shortage and transportation. I'm going to put before that reported transportation issues in America. So generally what they're asking is, is it possible, in your own opinion, not so much legality wise, that a special unit may be formed? by the USA Immigration Office to solve the pilot shortage problem and give the mm. opportunity for expat pilots to work in America? What do you think? And so, I, <laughs> so the way that's a really great question. And if I had any way to make it happen, I would absolutely do it. The way to be able to address it is not necessarily a special unit, but is to have a special policy. And, um, and that policy wouldn't necessarily be the way to address it would be to basically have policy, not necessarily a unit. Because remember, these are the visa categories, all the ones that I mentioned, our hands are tied with those. But remember I said in the H-1B context, for example, that you must have a degree to do a job. But what we also know is at least 50%, less than 50% of pilots don't have a degree. And one of the important issues to know for the degree factor is that the government in the U.S. is looking at a four-year degree program. And if you have a degree uh, anywhere in the world, often they're three-year degrees, and there are academic organizations in the U.S. who will do an academic evaluation and say, this degree is the equivalent of that degree here. Right. You know, so they'll say a biology degree in Canada is the same as a biology degree in the US because they've done their analysis. Now, what if you do not have a degree? And we've talked about a lot that to be a pilot, you have gone through hundreds and hundreds of hours of um, training to be able to even get behind um the cockpit. Uh, I'm so proud I know that word. Well and done. so uh, <laughs> I, I, it's almost like I need to know the anatomy of an airplane. Take me to an airplane. And um, so the, the, the way to get around that often to show that you have a degree is three years of work experience is the equivalent of one year of schooling. 
And so if you have had some schooling and work experience combined, the evaluation organizations that I just mentioned will take your references, your resumes and anything else you could show to prove you work to say this person through his 15 years of experience has the equivalent of a degree in, you know, aeronomics or whatever uh, and they can make that so somebody who's been a bookkeeper for 20 years might have a degree in accounting you know and then we can say as an with an accounting degree they can do this job right am I making sense yeah. and so that is a way to get around the h1b issue um, but the policies that could be generated through, you know, the discussion that we just had is to memorialize it on paper. So if an immigration officer is looking at this, they don't dismiss an application because less than 50 percent of people need a degree. And in the last few years, we did have this issue with computer systems analysts. Right. So a computer, oh, sorry, computer programmers. Right. Computer programmers is a particular H-1B um, job. It is completely acceptable. But in the, in the previous administration, there was policy written saying, if you are trying to get a computer programmer H-1B, forget it. These days, people can program computers without having a degree. We will not give you uh, an H-1B. That came through policy saying we will not give that. But then when the new administration came along, they said, you know, we scrapped that policy. We will let people have degrees as a computer, uh, H-1Bs with a computer programmer as a computer programmer. So that kind of policy can be created. So anybody who's listening here, and if you are any, at all involved in the ecosystem of the airline industry, maybe there's a way to ask for a policy to ensure there are flexible adjudication um, policies for these various visa categories. And maybe there's a way to say, if you're applying for an H-1B as a pilot, we will not deny you. Uh, if you can show you know, the anatomy of the visa, as I just mentioned earlier. Uh, and same goes for each of the other visas, if they're possible. But I do think policy can be created uh, if there are enough people who suggest it. Now, if you think about the administration and it is run by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, and so anybody who's not in the US, I'm so glad you're listening to this show. And I'm so <laughs> grateful again to David for allowing me this opportunity. I love I love talking, you know, and sharing. <laughs> but you have so much knowledge. That's the oh thing. my gosh. It's you know, like, it's I need to get it out. I need to get it's it great. out. Well, okay, I have more questions for you now, Zamina. So... Uh, as mentioned already, there's a lot of information. We'll put the links in so it'll it'll make more sense depending on your uh, country of origin or residency with regards to applying for uh, for visas. So another question I have, or not I have, that's been sent in, is, okay, they want to know if they get a visa, say, for example, a two-year visa like the E3 visa, which is for the Australians, but say any other type of visa like H1B or, or so on, and they find themselves kind of settled in America. Is the visa renewable? And can they obtain permanent residency from any of these visas? Is there a criteria? Very, very good question. And the answer is not simple. It's a two-pronged answer. Right. So number one, if you're going to renew it, yes, you can renew it. The E3 can be renewed two years at a time. If you are in the U.S., you can renew it within the U.S. by filing uh, specific forms and paying the government the fees. And anytime you renew a visa in the U.S., no matter what that visa is, you have to apply for the renewal while you are in status, meaning while that particular visa is current or valid. Right. Okay. If you have even gone by one day, you cannot renew it uh, properly anymore. You have to leave the country and go to the embassy. You can, um, it, all visa processing in the U.S. take a long time. But in, during COVID, um, the E3 visa, for example, was not, uh, did not have the privilege of exp expediting processing meaning that H-1Bs and L's and E's, you can pay the government an extra $2,500 and they will look at your case within two weeks. The E3 did not have that privilege until recently. And right. so the E3 can be done, uh, renewed here. All the other visas can also be renewed. The H-1B visa, I didn't, I didn't mention this before, 
um, has a, a six-year limit. And so okay. that visa would be given three years and three years. The other visa, just, you know, it occurred to me to mention, just to throw out there as part of the visa soup, is the O visa. If you are somebody who has received a lot of accolades and awards for the incredible work that you've done, you've, um, you could possibly get an O visa. It is often dubbed as the genius visa. And it was in the news a lot in the last few years because the uh, former first lady had used it as a model. And so people might be familiar with that term. But those of you who follow follow football or soccer, you know, David Beckham would likely have had an O visa in the right. past. Maybe even Prince Harry had it. I don't really know. But you have to be at the top echelon of your uh, profession and um, the, the work you do. So but that visa is given for five years only and then you can you renew it one year at a time um and so yes the answer coming back to your answer yes you can renew it in the u.s or you could renew it outside the u.s depending on the kind of visa it is um e3s typically it was better to send people outside the country to get them renewed it would have been quicker because there was no premium processing but as covid shifted how the world was working the embassy was closed and we couldn't do things here um the policy change of uh, premium processing made all the difference but to get a green card let's say you've been here for a while and you really love it and you're settled now the green card is a whole different ball game and you oh, might dear. need a different conversation at a different time <laughs> but in a nutshell in a nutshell for most visas except for the l in most visas the gov the employer has to show that they tried to recruit an american worker for this particular job and they couldn't find that person therefore they are applying for the immigrant the right. applicant the listener um that and that process takes several years. It's very complicated. It costs a lot of money for the employer um, and it's not easy. So employers will definitely not do this at the outset. They will wait to see if you are somebody they really want to put this time and effort behind. And this expense has to come from the employer. Even if you say to them, look, I'll pay for it. It's not, it's not legal, it's not possible. And so it is the sole responsibility of the employer to pay for the process and do the bonafide recruitment and does and, that include to I mean, does that include mm -hmm. all visas does the employer have to pay for every visa very good question generally speaking the conservative answer is yes okay. um and and all visas will typically have a two-pronged expense one for the government to touch the forms and one for the attorney whoever the attorney is and um it is H-1Bs, for work visas, I think the best answer is to say employers should um, cover the costs. And if there are specific questions, I'd be ha happy to answer them uh, at another time, depending on uh, circumstances. But sure. walk away with yes. Uh, but the green card absolutely must be paid by the employer. Um, there are specific questions on the form. And if you, if the government sort of suspects that the employee had any part in paying that application will be denied and it likely won't be denied for another three four years because that's the time they figure that out and in the meantime you've lost for five years but the other thing to know is when you're trying to get a green card right at the end of the process so let's take it it's taken four or five years to get to the point where you can apply for that actual green card there are many steps but the last step is the actual green card form uh, that will depend on when you, where you are born you could be uh, you could have been born in um, um, Indonesia or Mexico but you could be a citizen of the UK the right. citizenship of the UK could get you an E2 visa but your birth in Mexico would determine when you get that green card you with me? Yeah, well, it's very, it's very, it's it's very complicated on which you, but it's a very complicated process, isn't it? Very complicated. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, there are people who, particularly from China and India, who are in the U.S. waiting for decades and decades. If you're from China, India, Philippines, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, I believe those two countries were added not so long ago. Uh, you're waiting for decades, and where you are in this waiting time is not only dependent on where you're born, but also remember I said employment, 
as the anatomy of the visa application and what that job requires and what yeah. you have, that also determines where you fall in this waiting category. There are employment preferences one, two, three, four, and five. Two, three, and four, uh, and generally re referred to as EB2, EB3, EB4, those determine where you fall into this process. Do you need a de degree to do this job? Do you not need a degree to do this job? Do you have that degree if you're not? And so there, there's a lot of analysis that goes into right at the beginning of a green card application to see where you fall in this incredible maze. And that determines what we do next. And the time span. So another question I have here is that, okay, so say, for example, you go through the process, as you mentioned, like the three, the three E's is dependent on the visa that you're applying for. Does that depend on the time it takes and the cost? Is every visa the same price? Or forget about green cards now at the moment, but generally the, uh, the, the, the visas themselves, as you mentioned, the H, H1B, mm -hmm. uh, H3 and so on. How long do they take to get uh, approved and how much does it cost? I know we mentioned that the employer should be paying for it, but mm -hmm. this is obviously a concern for, for people. That yes, absolutely. Um, the cost will determine on the visa. Uh, and I think people should think of it as four to $6,000, depending on the visa. Wow. Uh, so that's for the lawyer, depending <laughs> on which law firm you, you go to. Right. Yeah. And again, I, you know, I keep coming back to the mantra, employment, employer, employee, yeah. the preparation really depends on the visa category. So remembering the L, I said, you know, there's a relationship between the companies, you know, that's yes. a subsection of the L, uh, the employer, the, uh, I mentioned, you know, uh, the job abroad and the job in the US, that's a subsection of the employment. The preparation of that visa category will determine how much work that particular application will take. Um, and so that is how the, the fees will vary. The government uh, has also variations in their fees, but the universal fee um, form for all work visas is something called an I-129, I-129. And that fee is $460. So there's a, there's a baseline fee. And the other fees um, for the L and an H and others, they all have supplemental fees depending on, on the application. The universal expedited fee is $2,500. And that is actually available for all the visas that I mentioned, right. uh, I believe. Um, so it can, it can cost the employer a good amount of money to do all of this. So they often will have an employment lawyer who will draft a very tight uh, employment contract. And there are, you know, terms about the costs and, you know, that kind of thing that they obviously an employer will want to make sure that this employee stays with them for some time. Right. Um, and so those are some of the things to keep in mind. Okay, another question here. I know uh, you, you've you haven't <laughs> you've answered everything. So the question I've, I've been sent is: What are the effective operational limits to the NIW EB two visa? I have mm. no idea what that is whatsoever. Have you? Well, luckily I do. Luckily <laughs> yeah. I do. Well, thank you for that question. And whoever asked it, thank you so much for sending it in. It was a pilot from, some... from Italy. I won't say his name, but anyway. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much from Italy. I love I love that I'm sitting at my desk in Seattle and talking to everybody around the world. This is yeah. amazing. Very <laughs> grateful. Um, the, the NIW, for anybody who doesn't know what this is, and for you, David, as well, it's National Interest Waiver. Now, I just mentioned a few minutes ago that um, an employer has to show they've done a bona fide recruitment that they could not find a worker. Uh, and that is called, um, that is essentially recruitment. Right. The national interest waiver is waiving that recruitment requirement based on the interest of the nation. Okay. Because this person is so good at what they do, they will be beneficial to the United States economy and interest. Okay. So could that be a so that, pilot to me in it, it? It could be. It could be. And the good thing about the national interest waiver is that it can be self-employed, meaning that you do not need a sponsor to file a national interest waiver. Right. 
And I think maybe I need to, uh, I'll just digress for one second. Yeah. The E2 and the E1, these can be self-employed in the sense that if you are opening your own business, you can have the E2 and E1 based on your own business entity. You do not need another employer. But the E2 requires investment in your business. E1 requires trade between the two countries. So you don't need a sponsor for these two. And often I do like these very much because the client has complete control over it. Right. When it comes to green cards, you must have an employer sponsor, except in two categories. The national interest waiver, because you're so important and beneficial to the United States, you can do this. Uh, there's also EB1, EB1A. EB1A. It is sort of the counterpart to the O1 visa. You're a genius. You're going to be so great for the country. Therefore, we're going to waive uh, the recruitment. So the national interest waiver, EB2, and remember I just mentioned a little while ago, there are preference categories, one, two, three, four, five. Yep. And so EB2 is the one where you need to show you have at least a master's degree or five years of experience. Right. That is how you fall into that category. But you have to show it uh, either with the degree certificate or with accolades that you have achieved. Now, one of the things about the National Interest Waiver is it used to be a very complex and difficult process. Uh, the, the, the legal requirements were difficult to prove. But as President Obama left office, the requirements were made a little bit better in that you could show you're beneficial as opposed to your not being in the US will harm the US. It's right. a much higher bar. But in the last few weeks, and I'm so glad the person from Italy asked this question, in the last <laughs> few weeks, um, the Biden administration has given flexible guidance, not necessarily flexible, but better guidance uh, in how you can prove that your work is going to be beneficial to the American economy. And so if you have a STEM degree, you can do this better. And this is a good time to tell you my website. It is www.watsonimmigrationlaw.com. And on the website, there is a blog. I want you to scroll the blog uh, post from the last three weeks, and you will see there are policy guidance uh, that were updated on the National Interest Waiver. It is a really great visa category. Uh, for those who meet the requirements. So look at that. And it is quite possible that uh, more people will be able to benefit from it. And the national interest EB2, national interest waiver EB2 category is for a permanent green card in the United States. So can I ask Antamina, so for the national interest waiver EB2 visa, it mentions uh, self-employed, so or master's degree or five years, sorry, or five years uh, experience. Do you need to prove to the uh, immigration officials when applying did you have money in terms of to support yourself because if you're applying for this visa as uh, self-employed status what what do you need to provide then to the to the immigration guys really good question such an astute question not necessarily money but you do need to show either you have a job offer or, or a job already right and i mean it's, it's amazing when all these visas that are available that the airlines specifically are still having issues. Because mm -hmm. as I said in the introduction, I mean, there's people that I even know my, my hand at the moment who are unemployed pilots in the UK and Europe looking for work in America. And mm -hmm. they're just desperate to get some sort of opportunity that'll open up the door, uh, firstly to work, but secondly, to have the opportunity to work in America. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to be able to hear uh, all the possibilities available that they can actually, uh, you know, they can, they can obtain a visa. I mean, the, the airlines themselves, I mean, could the pilots contact the airlines directly or is this out of bounds in, in the day that we kind of live in now that everything's done through a human resources process where you click a little box and when you're, when you're doing your application form online, it'll say, have you got legal right to work in America? Once you tick the box, no, so your application's in the bin. I mean, mm, yeah, it, is, there, is there a way, I mean, I know we have social media, we have LinkedIn and so on, which is a great way to actually get in touch with, with HR officials. But has, has anybody that you're aware of gone through this other process, not so much in, in, in the pilot industry or the aviation industry, but in any other industry? I mean, is there other ways to get around this to actually get in touch with the people at the top? 
You know, I wish I could say yes, but I don't really know because, you know, when as a as a small firm, um, you know, uh, my clients are not the giant companies. My clients are the small to medium companies. Right. And so when it's a large company like an airline, they have their own systems, their bureaucratic systems, their departments, and they have their own strategies and people. My suggestion would be that if there are listeners here that you form your own coalition, group together and get your voices heard and find one person who will listen to you. Maybe you tweet them and say that we can help. And, you know, if you're able to get the ear of somebody, uh, maybe maybe that's when we all get together and give them some of this guidance together or share this podcast with them. I think there's a lot of opportunity. One of the things that I always mention to all my clients is that in adversity there is opportunity yeah. um, where there is if even if there's darkness there's light at the end of the tunnel and even though these sound like cliches they are honestly true you just have to believe and then take action a lot of times what we see in society is that there's a problem and you sort of you know fold your arms and sit back and wait for somebody to do something and one of the reasons that i've written my books is because I firmly believe that we can all do something. If you care about one issue, you can make a difference. I mean, David, you're the prime example. You care about this issue. You have knowledge about this issue and you're doing something about it. Yes. If everybody did something about it, whatever that is, um, there would be more progress in the world. Yes, there are obstacles. If you think about what's happening in parts of Europe at the moment, where people are fearing for their lives, you know, um, there's only so much you can do, but there's still something you can do. Get your voice heard. And so I firmly believe that getting your voice, your unique voice, David, your voice is unique. Your listeners' voices are unique. Everybody has this perspective. Get it heard. I am such an advocate of getting your voice heard because you will not see change otherwise. Very, very inspirational, as you said there. You know, it's it's as as we mentioned before uh, to me. I mean, without the likes of yourself and your expertise, we wouldn't be able to get this information out to to the guys that, that actually uh, guys and girls are that, that actually want it. Uh, the I mean, to get the ball rolling. I mean, Mister, <laughs> I'm putting him under pressure now. Mister Chris Owens, who is the vice president of flight operations from from Breeze. Um, if he gets an opportunity to listen to this. Or any of his colleagues i mean th th there's so many guys i can't tell you that are unemployed at the moment in europe specifically uh asia um other parts of the world that would have the very experience of thousands of hours uh, would love an opportunity to work for your airlines in america and uh i'd be grateful if you could just give them some sort of light or an opportunity, even just to chat with you guys, or or or, or meet you, even if it's over Zoom or some virtual call. And there's so many guys out there that are are jumping at the bit to to work in America, especially for the airlines. Um, is there anything else to me that you think is is worth noting before we go? I've kept you now just over an hour and ten minutes. But <laughs> well, I, I think it's a it's a fascinating <laughs> conversation, and I'm so grateful I have the opportunity to share. I would suggest that you know I I have written two books, and they're two different types of books, but I I think they touch on the things that I mentioned. So I will mention the two books. One is called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era, and the other book is called The Startup Visa. Uh, the Legal Hero part, I really want. Want you to read it to be inspired to do something about whatever matters to you uh, it's about lawyers that stepped up in that period of time to protect human rights and rights of you know uh, civil rights and i think it's useful to hear what an ordinary person can do in extraordinary times. And these are extraordinary times. So don't think of it as lawyer stories necessarily. Think, read the stories and think about what you can do, how you, it's a bit like how JF Kennedy said, not what the country can do for you, but what can you do for the um, country? So that happens where, wherever. And uh, the other thing I will mention is the startup visa. I talk about, I've been a big proponent uh, of having a visa for people starting their own companies. And we just 
we definitely don't have one of those, but the UK has one, uh, Ireland has a startup visa, uh, various parts in Europe has a startup visa, but we do not have one. And it's a huge benefit uh, to have entrepreneurial people in the US, and maybe some of you have that entrepreneurial spirit within you. And after the conversation that you've just heard now, reading that book could spark some ideas for you. And if you do have those ideas, I'd be happy to help you mold them. So read those two um, books. I would also say I also have two podcasts. Uh, David, I've, I'm launching a new podcast, actually. So I have a, and a very established podcast called Tamina Talks Immigration. And you will find a wealth of knowledge in that particular podcast that's been around since 2015. But I'm launching a spin-off from my book called Ooh. The Startup Visa Podcast. <laughs> I'm so proud that I can say I've got a spin-off. Well but done. I realized... <laughs> I realize people need this knowledge that you and I just spoke about yes. in a very simplified manner. And so I'm talking about that in the new podcast. So it's it's available um, on iTunes. And then my blog really is a, a one-stop shop for many people because as the government gives out new information, we, we post that out. Um, and so if anybody wants to connect, I'm on LinkedIn and that's a great place to stay connected and see what I'm doing. But I... What I only preach what I do, you know, I do not I do not ask people to take uh, a stand or share your voice because it would be disingenuous if I didn't do that myself. Yes. But I do that on a very daily basis because I care. Sometimes I say, I wish I could care less so I could just sleep better. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I can't seem to do that. And yeah. so I really want people to know that when you are in a difficult situation in life, it is there to teach you something. It's there to help you stand up for yourself. And this is the time to do it. So take all the education that David has been able to provide here and see how you use it for your, for your and the highest good. Well, thanks so much, Tamina. I'm going to let you go now because we've been recording for such a long period of time, it's supposed to be just an hour, but there's so much information. Uh, as Tamina has said, um, uh, you know, we'll 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 put the links in with regards with the podcasts, with the relevant information. If you have any questions, please get in touch. If you're confused, please get in touch. Um, and all that's left me to say is thanks so much to uh, the founder of Watson Immigration Law, uh, Tamina Watson, for joining me today on the Wellbeing Career Podcast. Thanks so much, Tamina. Thank you so much, David.